This is a special edition of the Radio Plasma podcast, featuring the lecture La Bomba Francesa de Guayama, Puerto Rico, a lecture by Rafael Rodriguez Cruz, recorded on April 17th of 2018 at the Wisteria Hearst Museum in Holyoke, Massachusetts. What I'm trying to do here is to run these lecture series, one today and there's going to be another one in May, um, to bring people to, to sort of get, the, get a new notion to revisit who are we as an island. And uh, Guayama was, is my birthplace. And the first time I remember Guayama was when I was nine years old. And I remembered it being so pretty and the island being so warm because I had been raised here in Springfield, Massachusetts, that when I went and took the airplane and landed in Puerto Rico, I just fell in love. And going into Guayama, it being so, so 19, well, 1800s, I want to say, I started to see people walking around and, and having the habits and Everybody walked around like with the balls hanging, Brenda, <laughs> hanging around uh, with their, with these dresses, right? Como los santos, um, haciendo promesas, and, and people were saying, you know, I, you know, asking all these saints, could you please um, take care of my child, and I will walk around with a habit for three months, two months, or whatever, and and I couldn't believe where I was at that time. I couldn't believe that this world existed. And I, all, all I can think of is that me being so colorful and, and being so into, into, so visual and being tiny, all I could see was these little balls in different colors, blues, baby beige, browns, and all that. And it was, it was funny because we, at the end of the conversation, we ended up saying we never left it. You know, and here I have it. You know, I brought it with me. I said, okay, I'm taking Guayama with me and people are going to see what Guayama is, what the plaza is. Um, you know, every time people from Holyoke talk about being the Salinas, I keep saying, no, you're from Guayama. Because Salinas is the Guayama. And not only Um, because we are the representative, representative district, but because we were Salinas, Arroyo, Patilla, all of that was Guayama. So when we talk about the power engine of Guayama, Rafael is going to talk to you more about that. Um, so him and I met in Northampton in 2005, I think it was. And he was ready to write his book, El Gran Cien Pie. We have some here for $7 donation towards Wisteria Hearst as a donation for them. Um, and what, what ended up happening was we connected through, through me had, having a dream that I had had five years before I met him of a painting of El Gran Cien Pie de Guayama. And his book was titled El Gran Cien Pie. So talk about meeting, right, in Northampton, out of nowhere. And I had dreamed with this image, and I meet the person who was going to write the book five years later. 
What are the odds, right? So I just fell in love with him because he was writing stuff about Guayama. So I would, he actually introduced me to Guayama and, 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 and we've been back and forth. Um, he introduced, we introduced each other's work in, in, in 2007 where they dedicated El, El Festival de Bomba de Guayama to his work and I would like to ask for an applause now because uh, Rafael is many, many things and beyond. And as I got to know him over the years, I was like, wow, courage is his, his, his faith. So Rafael was born in New Jersey, but grew up in Puerto Rico, in Guayama, so he is Guayames. His parents were Guayameses. And he's a long-term resident of Springfield. He obtained a law degree from Western New England University. He has been an attorney since 1997. Rafael is a former chair of the board of directors of the Rosenberg Fund for Children. People who do not know what that is, you need to know. He also is currently a member of the Board of Directors of Arise for Social Justice. Rafael was, an active, was active in the struggle against the Navy in Vieques between 1999 and 2003. He was there every day. He writes for several magazines in Puerto Rico and Latin America, including Rebelión, 80 Grados, Claridad, and Encuentro al Sur. He is currently collaborating with a coalition of community groups in the southeast, porque nos vamos a quedar con la isla of Puerto Rico. <laughs> um, let me see what else I have here. I'm so sorry. I just moved this. Um, he is currently, currently collaborating with a coalition of community groups in the southeast of Puerto Rico seeking environmental cultural and social justice for Afro-Caribbean communities in the, in the southeast of Puerto Rico. In 2006, he published the book El Gran Sempier about the African roots of Puerto Rico. In 2014, he won a literary award during the International Book Fair in Havana, Cuba. Muy importante, escuchen. His book, El Coyote y su Bol de Polvo, examines the current state of our environmental struggles in the United States and the struggle for a multicultural left. Con ustedes, Rafael <laughs> Rodriguez, Rodriguez Cruz. Well, thank you for those uh, kind words. Uh, I uh, originally, when, when uh, Albita and I talk about uh, this presentation, I explained to her that my, my interest in the topic that we have tonight is primarily uh, sociological uh, in nature. And it, it, this is a little bit like a deja vu in reverse, because last Saturday and Sunday, I was in Puerto Rico uh, with a number of uh, groups uh, in the southeast of Puerto Rico uh, precisely talking about our struggles and talking about the Puerto Ricans in Western Massachusetts, which is really interesting. And now I'm here uh, in a different context. I think that part of the problem is that uh, to some degree, uh, Puerto Ricans from here and Puerto Ricans from there need to start talking to each other and starting a dialogue to understand uh, 
the 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 ways that they can uh, co collaborate. I think that one of the one of the things that I wanted to uh, point out uh, before I start. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this kind of like uh, going through the personal thing. Like I write stories. I, I I always try to connect my personal life with the with the pol politics or, or politics or whatever topic that I'm interested. There's a book coming up uh, soon. I think is a, a there. I have the 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 photocopy of it. The a copy of it. The a video of it. It's a, it's a it's a movie by Naomi Klein. It's called The Battle for Paradise. And the title of the book is Puerto Rico Takes on a Capitalism. Puerto Rico Fights a, a Disaster Capitalism. And I like the book for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, it has not been published yet. It's coming out on June 19th, June 18th. My niece translated it into Spanish, which was really nice. Uh, Naomi Klein, I don't know if you know that she was recently in Puerto Rico, and she was meeting with uh, community groups and uh, participating in a number of events that uh, are uh, basically grassroots as opposed to uh, intellectual uh, uh, events. Even though she had something in the University of Puerto Rico, most of her interaction were with people who are organizing uh, to deal with the crisis in Puerto Rico and the response to the uh, the in the disaster of the hurricane, and she said a couple of interesting things that uh, I think some Puerto Ricans kind of like ignore her, but I think they're really uh, uh, valuable. Number one, she said that she found in Puerto Rico widespread community organizing. That this is people who are struggling every day, and it's true. I mean, if you read the media, you don't hear about that. And if you read the newspapers from Puerto Rico, you don't hear about that. But if you go to Puerto Rico, like I have done three times after the, the hurricane, people are organized all over the island. Some areas more than others, uh, but they're organizing themselves to uh, gain uh, more control over their lives and to be able to, to solve the problems that they have at hand. Some of the problems are really basic like water, food, uh, energy, and so forth. But other problems have to do with who takes, makes decisions. Uh, some of the problems enter into conflict directly with uh, US corporations. And again, this is my, my like, like when I write, this is my perspective. It doesn't mean that uh, there might be uh, other people who disagree with my perspective of what is happening in Puerto Rico. But I think that, that part of her statement, and the book is coming out soon, is really interesting. The other thing that she said, which I think uh, made me start thinking, is that she feels that uh, the case of Puerto Rico is a case of widespread trauma. Trauma, that's how you spell it, you know. That, that she feels that instead of talking about the, doc, the shock doctrine, that in the case of Puerto Rico, is more useful to talk about uh, the trauma doctrine in that you have uh, 3.5 million uh, individuals, Puerto Ricans, who are victimized by US corporations as a result of a profound trauma that they have. And you know, when she said that in Puerto Rico, you know, sometimes we Puerto Ricans are kind of like pride. You know, what are you gonna tell me that I have a trauma? But I think that it's something that we need to think. And our intellectuals uh, need to think about uh, that uh, statement uh, in a, in a 
in a more profound way. And this is really crazy. Uh, when the hurricane came, I was supposed to travel to Puerto Rico September 21st because I was going to go to the Grito de Lares, which is the day that we, you know, few of us celebrate the, the, the struggle for independence in Puerto Rico. But obviously, the hurricane came. I tried to go. I tried to go the next day. It didn't work. Uh, I uh, started uh, writing a number of articles particularly in Latin America, where I said, you know, a week and a half after the hurricane, when it was obvious that the United States uh, was saying that they were not going to help Puerto Rico, that Trump was saying that uh, they were going to collect the debt, that uh, for the first time he came out in a really nasty way. I, uh, and there were different countries that were offering to help us. Cuba, uh, I think Argentina, uh, Venezuela. I made a statement that maybe, maybe it was crazy, but I felt that that was the time to go for independence. Like the way you take out a Band-Aid, just do it, do it, don't wait. But that call never, never came. It never came for many reasons. One of them is that uh, for years, you know, uh, they have destroyed uh, the political organizations of the independentista movement and so forth. You can give all the excuses that you want. But at that time, there was something interesting in Puerto Rico in that people were getting together in order to deal with problems that they had, even if they belonged to different political parties. And I said, you know what? This is unity. And it's a unity that is being uh, developed at a time that uh, uh, the United States was saying, well, we're not going to help, uh, we're not going to help them. And I started thinking about, you know, all the things that were happening in Puerto Rico. And I remember the uncle of Brenda Cepeda. Brenda Cepeda is here. She is one, she's from uh, Springfield, and she dances bomba, and they have a group that is called Bomba de Aquí. And somehow, even though a lot of people didn't have access to the internet, her uncle did. And if you haven't heard Jesus Cepeda playing bomba, you don't know what is sweet music. I just saw him, I was with him, I think, last, last Saturday, the 7th, last, last Saturday in, in, in a community that is called Coqui that I'm going to talk about. And he was saying, you know, within all the despair, within all the feelings of, you know, a lack of ability to do things, let's go back to our roots. Let's go back to the music. Let's go back to Bomba. And I said, you know, I wrote to him and said, you ought to be crazy. Because Bomba is really an African dance. Of all the Puerto Ricans dances, Bomba is the most African. You know, salsa, cha-cha, rumba, whatever, song, Cuban music, that's a blend of African music with European rhythms. You know, that's, that's the reason they dance the way they do it, because it got mixed with a, you know, it's like ballroom dancing and African. But bomba is really African. It's, if all the, I can't think about any other uh, dance in the Caribbean that I've seen that is closer to uh, the African roots. Maybe some people might think otherwise, but that's my, my opinion. And he kept saying, well, you know, we have to go back to that because we're going to get a lot of strength from there. So I said, well, that's, that's an interesting uh, statement. Well, I've been to Puerto Rico three times after the hurricane. Bomba is the dance of the youth in Puerto Rico. 
forget about salsa, forget about reggaeton, forget about plena. Every place you go, especially in the coast, they're dancing and playing bomba. Something incredible. And not only that, they're mixing it with rhythms from the United States or from more advanced, uh, uh, different kind of things. And it's incredible. I mean, they just recently made a call for 200 people to play bomba in a town. And every place you go, even in Guayama, uh, I have friends that they say, well, we're going tonight to La Plaza to play bomba. And this is gonna, I'm, I'm gonna get back to this because this is really interesting. The last trip that I went uh, was last week and it's all over the place. Not only that, in every single town, they're developing uh, schools for learning how to dance and play bomba. Of course, I grew up in Puerto Rico uh, years ago. So at that time, the bomba that was played was a little different to the bomba that is played today because young people has, they have really energized this dance. And to go to a protest in Puerto Rico is confusing because you don't know if you're going to protest or to a party. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you get you know hundreds and hundreds of people, and then they immediately make a, a, a circle, and then they put all the drums and they la maracas, and they and they start dancing bomba. And now you know, young people, children, all over the place. It's like you know they have really uh, overtaken youth culture in Puerto Rico, Bomba. And I, I think this is fascinating because when, when her uncle said that, I said, this guy must be crazy. And, and he's a legend in Puerto Rico because of his, he comes from a family where a Bomba was a, a, a family has been playing Bomba forever. And he uh, said that and I said, this is a, a interesting that, that, that is happening. And that is happening uh, in a way that uh, it energizes people to be politically active, it energizes people to participate. That was the original uh, role of Bomba among slaves uh, centuries uh, ago. Now, when, I, when the hurricane happened, obviously I couldn't go to Puerto Rico, so I started uh, thinking about uh, if at that time, in Puerto Rico, the United States was saying, we, we're not gonna help, yeah. screw you. And people were uh, getting together and they were starting to do things on their own and solving their own problems. What kept them from calling for independence? What did? And I think that one of the reasons was precisely what Naomi Klein said, trauma. Because when people are traumatized, one of the things that happens to them is they froze, they freeze whether it's personal trauma or whatever trauma. And, and, and the reality is that if you look at what was coming out of Puerto Rico at that time, I think that even the independentistas froze with the idea of, gee, what are we gonna do now? What is gonna be the next step? Everybody was frozen. People who were in favor of the United States, people were in like because for years and years, you were told that the United States was gonna be there for, for Puerto Ricans. And that was a deep-rooted feeling no matter what happened, they're gonna come and help us. And this time they didn't come. So it wasn't only the trauma of the hurricane, it was also the trauma of the... Uh, the betrayal. The betrayal. It's, it's really interesting, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about, again, my trips, because at the first trip, I crossed the island 
diagonally. I went from San Juan to Mayagüez, stopping in every town, helping people, you know, talking to people. This time, uh, the second trip, I stayed more in the San Juan area. Uh, now this trip, I went on the coast. Started in Luquillo, went east, and then went uh, south. And depending on where you go, there are people that are so traumatized that they don't want to talk about the hurricane. No, you have to see this. I stopped and went to bars or uh, barber shops, and uh, I saw a sign, don't talk about the hurricane. I said, what the heck is this? Don't talk about religion, politics, or the hurricane. Because they don't want to hear it. Because they feel that it's like talking about a relative that they lost. There are other places that people will talk about that, but then they will relieve the thing. They will tell you, you want to hear about the hurricane? And man, they give you an hour of all the painful things that they went through. Because it was really painful. And then you regret having asked because, you know, it's like they, they go through the whole thing. Some of them cry. Some of them open their hearts. Uh, but that's a sign of, of trauma. And there are other regions in the other places where people have been able to uh, band together and start doing things. And uh, they, they have higher spirits. It, and on a side note, uh, we had a, a poet from, from my town, uh, Luis Pales Matos, who used to say that in our culture, black people are the strong one. Uh, Spaniards are not. And uh, it's interesting that between 1450 to 1790, those four centuries, there were no hurricanes in the Caribbean. And his claim, or the claim of some people, is that we were colonized by the Europeans because there were no hurricanes. The first big hurricane came in 1791. And we're going to I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But 1791 on is that you have the explosion of uh, Afro-Caribbean culture. Haiti, Martinique, Cuba. As a result, it was, in, in a way, it was really contradictory that the hurricane a, a kind of like move people to a rebel. In the hurricane of 1791, 20,000 black people died between Barbados, a, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. Because the Spaniards and the French a, slave masters, they, they, a, they brought the horses and the cows inside. But the slaves were cheaper, so they left them out. And uh, like I said, about 20,000 uh, died. So I started to think about, you know, what is this trauma? As an intellectual, so I'm, I'm not sure I can call myself that. But I think that intellectuals have an obligation, a responsibility of really finding out what is this trauma that we have. And it's a really weird thing. Because if you're in Holyoke or if you're in Springfield, Puerto Ricans tend to elect progressive candidates. But if they go to Puerto Rico, they vote for people who are going to harm them. And they become really irrational about it. They don't want to hear it. And you say, but you know, sometimes I ask them, you know, where are you from? From Mars? Because the connection is like, you know, there's no, no way really of explaining that uh, other than by trauma. I don't want to get too psychological, because I think that the the, the relationship between trauma and uh, organizing is really important. And in the context of Puerto Rico right now, you have 
culture playing a big role, what her uncle said, particularly bomba among the youth, not among us, you know, I'm old. The young people, to see them, how they get organized, how they cherish a, a dance that, that comes from Africa, and how that uh, binds them together, it, it is really uh, uh, interesting. In fact, in, in June 3rd, there are 250 Puerto Ricans going to Santiago de Cuba for an African celebration. And if you have seen any city close that looks like Guayama, it's Santiago de Cuba. It's really the most, most rebel, more, more African, more uh, uh, musical, more uh, everything is Santiago de Cuba. I don't know if anyone has been here. I've been there a couple of times. So I started to, you know, to try to find out what this, what was the origin of this trauma. And one of the things that I did is, you know, I had so much free time. Because every time I called to Puerto Rico, I couldn't talk to anyone. I was like desperate. And all the Puerto Ricans here were like trying to find out what's going on. So I started to read a number of reports from the, from the US government because I wanted to know, some people were saying, oh, this is Trump. Look how Trump is treating us. Look what the Trump administration is doing this to us. But what happened in previous uh, hurricanes? Were we treated differently? Hmm. So the, in 19, 1899, a year after the invasion, we had a hurricane that was bigger than Maria. That hurricane came and basically destroyed our agriculture. It, it followed kind of like the same path, destroyed like 90% of the crops, coffee and, and sugar. About 3,000 people died as a consequence of that hurricane. And we were under a military rule. No Jones Act, no Fortaker Act. The governor of Puerto Rico was a general from the United States. So what they did at that time, it's interesting to find, they militarized the relief effort. And what they meant for a militarizing the relief effort is that there was not gonna be any military relief effort. The only effort that, that only relief that a, reached Puerto Rico in 1899 came from uh, civilians in the United States, particularly women groups in New York City. What a fascinating thing. And at that time, even though there was no, no Jones Act, the military, uh, the general in Puerto Rico decided that the only way of transporting uh, food or other items to Puerto Rico had to be through military ships. They didn't allow any ship from any other country to come to help us. Sounds familiar? Sounds identical. So in addition to that, they started to take a, a number of economic uh, measures uh, by a general. This was not Congress. This is a general you know, uh, dictating how things uh, were going to be. For the first one was to uh, prohibit people from taking loans. And you know that in an agricultural uh, cycle, particularly in uh, coffee, you take a loan at the beginning of the, of the season where you're planting and harvesting and so forth, and then after you sell uh, the product, then you pay the loan. They decided, no, you can't do that. They also uh, devaluated all our property in 40%. So if you own a property, suddenly that property was 40% less in terms of uh, value. At that time, we had a dollar. 
It was a Puerto Rican peso, which was actually a, a, a currency that was really strong uh, compared to the Spanish uh, peso. And one of the things that uh, Puerto Ricans were doing was that they would buy a Puerto Rican pesos at one price and then sell it to Spain at a higher price, and they were making a big profit. So one of the first things that uh, the, even the, the generals that invaded Puerto Rico said was, wow, these people are making a lot of money with this trick. At that time, a lot of the, the Spanish pesos were produced in Mexico, and they were brought all the way to Spain. But if you can get them cheaper from Mexico, you can resell them to a, a Spain, which is a way of you know what Marx used to call a primitive accumulation. Oh, wow. I haven't been away from school for such a long time. So I ended up, you know, thinking, you know, what is this? We need to uh, start uh, explaining to our people and to ourselves what is the root of this trauma and how are we going to overcome this? Because if you look at Puerto Rico right now, the fact that we decided uh, seven months ago, whatever, not to move into independence, we are in a difficult spot now. The consequences of not having done that, they're terrible. I mean, if you drive through a Naguabo and you go to Guayama, there are towns where they have no light, no electricity, no water, there's no food. You talk to people, they say, we haven't received anything. I talked to uh, merchants and restaurant owners who had explained to me, have explained to me how they survive. I mean, I met this guy who owns a nice restaurant in, in Luquillo, uh, one of the best uh, seafood restaurants in Puerto Rico. It's called La Barrilla. You can go and, you know, you, you will love it because inter it's interesting. But he, in the middle of, this, of the storm, he decided to uh, start selling food uh, at the same price, five bucks. You could eat whatever you want from the restaurant. The only thing is that people had to barter work for food. And he started a whole system that you know, spread around. People were like his employees were doing things, not getting paid, but, and so forth. And other people were cleaning the, the parking and things like that. And I had a long conversation with him because I said, you know, it's interesting that this guy had such a, a creative and such the energy to uh, organize people to work in solving a problem. So I said, OK, what do you think about the status? Eh. As far as he went. Oh, the Americans are going to come to help us. Seven months after that, have they come? No. Even the money that they collected here in the United States uh, by the governor, or the wife of the governor, that money has never been distributed. That went to their own friends and things like that. There are towns in Puerto Rico that are like the hurricane was yesterday. And it breaks you hard to see that. And when you go there, uh, you realize that uh, we, in a way, need to become empathetic with, towards other Puerto Ricans. And we fail to do that a lot. We tend to uh, perceive things in terms of uh, the town that I am or the individual that I am, instead of understanding that you know, there are people who, you know, the suicide rate is high in those towns. Uh, people are despair. So, some people in the left say, you know, how come they're not making a revolution? Gee, you know, 
they haven't solved the basics. You know, why should a little bit more empathetic and relate uh, with them in a different way? So at least that's my view. Anyway, I started reading a number of articles, and uh, some people here might have read what I published in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, in, I went back to 1898 when the United States invaded uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, the general who came there was uh, Nelson Miles. He was a little nutty. Uh, but he directed the invasion of uh, Puerto Rico. In, and together with him, <clears throat> there, com there came a group of people who were uh, geologists, geographers, uh, engineers of hydrology, people who were, uh, they even sent a ship uh, to Puerto Rico to examine the coast of Guayama, of all the coast. So uh, the Southeast interested them a lot. And they were like, you know, let me, can I move a, 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 a picture here? How do I do that? I'm forgetting about the pictures. So this, well, this is the first map, military map that was made of Puerto Rico, the first one by this guy. This was done by the military, let me see, uh, this is what they were using just to control the island. Now the, the next one. The next one, what I did, this is a map from 1898, and this is a path that a guy named Herbert Wilson took. He went to Puerto Rico in 1898, immediately after the invasion, and he got off a boat in San Juan, and he went by horse, all of this. And he produced a document that is a, called Water Resources of Puerto Rico, was published by the US Geological Survey in 1899, 1899, correct, a year, a year after the invasion was invaded, it was published, but this was the, the exploration that he did. And he was like, you know, like Lewis R. Clark in the United States. He wanted to know where there was, what amount of water there was in Puerto Rico, and what, what was exactly the, the hydrological map of the island. We're gonna get into that. Uh, there was another guy who came a little bit after that, and his name was Robert uh, Hill. Robert Hill was famous because he, he was like a big geologist in the United States, and he was doing research on the exploration of oil in the area of Texas. And also he was looking into the use of underground uh, water in Texas. This is the southeast of Puerto Rico, this is Guayama, so. It feels bigger in our heart than what it is in reality. So they published a number of uh, articles where they say, wow, what a fabulous country. What an interesting country this is. And what they found interesting is that this country is primarily mountains in the center. And you have a little bit of plains in the southeast a little bit of plains here and a little bit of plains in the uh, northeast. Uh, but they were impressed with the fact that in Puerto Rico, the plains, the lands that are flat, are really not that productive. But the mountains are incredibly productive. If you compare Puerto Rico with Cuba, Cuba has a lot of plains that are highly productive. They don't need irrigation, they don't need a fertilizer. But in Puerto Rico, the bulk of our highly fertile land is in the center. And they started to 
looking to that and saying, wait a second, this is one of the smallest uh, islands in the Caribbean, but it actually exports food to other islands. Puerto Rico used to export uh, meat to Cuba. Surprisingly, Puerto Rico used to export tobacco to Cuba. And the Cubans will like pack it as Cuban cigars and sell them out. Puerto Rico used to produce, according to this uh, representatives of the government, it used to produce enough food not only for its own people, but for selling outside. And then when I read that, you know, I almost went into tears because I grew up hearing the opposite. And if you stop 10 Puerto Ricans out there, seven of them are going to say, we're too little to feed ourselves. No, we were doing it. Not only that, if you read the descriptions of our towns, how they spoke about our art, literature, architecture, it's impressive to hear that from two individuals who were sent there as uh, agents of imperialism, basically, to find out how to screw us. They also sent a ship that went around Bahia de Hobos and did all the analysis of a, a ships that could come in and out, how deep was the water, and, and all of that. Basically, they concluded that the high productivity, they, they say, you know, we're talking about 1899. In the United States, the idea that they had about uh, advanced agriculture were the Great Plains. And the Great Plains are about flat land and extension, right? You know what I'm talking about? The, uh, Dakotas, Texas, uh, the whole uh, production of wheat in the Midwest. But here they found that there were, they said the people hanging from the mountains and producing all kind of stuff. And this is a land that you throw the seed and boom, suddenly produces. So interestingly enough, uh, some of those articles came out in the National Geographic. The first time that uh, the Bahia de Hobos and her neighborhood was mentioned was in 1899 in the, the publication of National Geographic. Helbert Wilson, who was the guy who was the, the guy who took the trip by horse, was famous because he was a, a, a he knew how to design irrigation uh, projects. And obviously the other guy, the geologist, was famous because uh, he was looking for minerals. Well, they both got to the conclusion that, number one, these people are well-fed. The land is highly productive. You know, maybe it would not be a bad idea to leave them alone. Interesting. They said that. And they said that in publications. And you're like, wow, what a, what a lie we have been living all around. Because none of that was ever you know, I don't remember hearing anything about that in, in Puerto Rico. We were always told we're too little, we can have big farms. And these two guys were saying, no, you can have a highly productive advanced uh, agricultural production in a small uh, piece of land. You don't need 10,000 acres. Of course, the products that we were producing was uh, coffee, tobacco, uh, and vegetables. Now, again, 
the land in Puerto Rico is not really suitable for the cultivation of sugarcane. Cuba is. Cuba, you don't need irrigation, you don't need any fertilizer. And you talk to any agriculture, a farmer in Cuba, and will tell you that, you know, they have extensive plains with highly fertile land. Our land is fertile in the center, not really around the coast, and particularly the southeast coast is really dry. No water, uh, no, no, no water other than uh, underground uh, water. And I'm gonna say something. I think that the interest in the United States in keeping Puerto Rico right now is more related to water than anything. Hmm, I know it's a crazy idea, but uh, some of the things that I'm gonna mention uh, ahead will probably uh, show that. Anyway, let me go to picture number four. So, yeah, this is a, a map of rivers in Puerto Rico. This, this, this little island is more than Connecticut. Look at that. Look at that. The amount of rivers, you know, even now, I went to Puerto Rico recently and went all the way to Villalba, Comerillo, way up there where you have to go like even by horse and you can find water anywhere in significant amount. I have a cousin that owns a, a farm, 240 acres, drinks the water from the farm. People don't even process the water. In, in Guamani, which is a, the northern part of, a, of this area of Guayama, people are still using a water. It almost comes out of the rocks. It's really some, something weird uh, to see that and to see the amount of water that that island has. Uh, part of the problem when, when it rains in Puerto Rico is that you have floods because there's so much water all over the place. So in that sense, we're very different to uh, Cuba. Could you put number five now? But there was someone who was interested in developing a sugar corporation here. At that time, they were called the Ford Company from Massachusetts, from Boston, and they wanted to establish a sugar company, a plantation, and a mill in Puerto Rico. And they ended up installing here what is probably the most advanced sugarcane processing mill in the whole Caribbean. Technological and size was something like a monster, something truly gigantic. And if you want to produce sugarcane, you need basically three things. Number one is you need land, and it has to be flat. Sugarcane doesn't grow in slopes or, or in mountains that are steep. Some people try it, but you know, not, not in big amount. The other thing that you need is water. At the time that they were investing there, it took 400 gallons of water to produce one pound of sugar. What an impressive thing. 400 gallons of water for a pound of sugar, right? So either you could produce sugar in Cuba where the land was uh, rich in uh, humidity and uh, you didn't need to use uh, irrigation, or you could do it in Hawaii where Hawaii has a similar structure to Puerto Rico, and Hawaii at that time had a massive, gigantic, uh, destructive irrigation system. 
built pretty much by Japanese that were brought to Japan to Hawaii as slaves to work there. And uh, by the way, the Puerto Ricans in, in Hawaii and they celebrate their uh, the Puerto Rican day was like last week, and they were playing cuatro, and they have a they have music that is a mix of Hawaiian and Puerto Rican music, and they eat empanadillas and pasteles, and. Uh, when I went in college, when I went, this is funny because when I went to college, I met this guy who was a, of a Japanese uh, background, and he acted, talked, and behaved like a Puerto Rican. I said, well, "What is it with you?" I said, "Well, I grew up in Hawaii with Puerto Ricans. There is a community because many Puerto Ricans were brought to work in the sugarcane uh, factories in Hawaii. Anyway, this guy, this area." The first governor of Puerto Rico said, wait a second, I'm going to put a sugar plantation there. And it's going to be the biggest. And even though this is a land that is dry, there's no water, where do you think he found water? This is a, this is a picture of the, of the mill when it was operating. OK, this is the southeast of Puerto Rico. So remember. In 1899, these two US Geological Survey personnel said, the center of Puerto Rico is highly fertile because it has so much water. But then, in order to produce sugar here where, where there is dry, what do you need? Water. So what they did was they drained the center of the island of water. So much for the ability to produce items to feed your people. So even though this was in many ways irrational, what they did, and you know, I have explored all of this. Last Friday, I was here, here. Uh, about a month ago, I went here. And this system is still operating, even though they don't produce sugar cane anymore. But this is taking the water that fed the center of the island, which was the, the, the place that was producing really agriculture for us at a time that we were the richest island in the Caribbean. And to say that compared to Cuba is something else. But I want to tell you something. We don't have sugarcane production here anymore, but Monsanto is buying land. They already have 6,000 acres. And you know what they're using? The water from the mountains. Because there's no really, there's underground water here, but by now it's polluted. And it's interesting. I just got an email from someone in Puerto Rico who is saying that in, from all this area of the southeast, people don't have water for drinking. But Monsanto has water, and they're producing seeds. And in the history of Puerto Rico, they built this thing between 1906 and 1914. And in 1915 was the time that they produced, they had the higher profits. They were producing sugar. It was in the middle of the war. The price of sugar went up. So they were producing sugar down here like massive amount. And people here were complaining because they didn't have water. These are, these are the channels. Those are constructed. Yeah, correct. You know, Puerto Rico didn't have any lakes in 1898. We had a couple of lagoons, but we had no lakes. 
All the water runs like you see it right now. That you're, you know, you, you get a flood just by in, in a second of rain. So this was built in 1910, 19, 19, 1913, this two. This one it was built in 1913, and this one was built in 1972. And those things are full of water. And you say, crap. What an interesting thing, because water in Puerto Rico is not private. You see, it belongs to the Puerto Ricans. So at that time, they decided the military governor, we were ruled by, by military, uh, not by military, we were ruled by a governor that was appointed by the president. This was built for free for the sugar companies the whole irrigation system. Not like in Hawaii, that sugar corporation had to pay for it. Here, it was given for them for free. Well, not exactly for free. They took a loan, and they put the loan on the people and gave this for free to them. So these big corporations were not only taking the water from the center of the island, but they were also uh, not paying for it. So it was absolutely uh, free. The, the, the sugar in Puerto Rico could not compete with the sugar from Cuba unless it was subsidized. And there were a number of subsidies that they provided for the sugar corporations. One of them was water, free water, and we have an amount of water that is incredible that this island, despite all the environmental, all the developments that you have in the island, you can drive 10 minutes without seeing a damn place with water. It's weird, and if you go to the center of the island, forget it, it's even worse, and it's sweet, clean, pure water. And I said here today, I think their interest right now is mostly water. But one of them, let me put it that way. So they uh, built this thing. They created this uh, uh, sugar company. It wasn't the only one, but this was the biggest, the most advanced. What is the third thing that you need in order to produce a sugar cane? You need work workers, right? Okay, that's a sugarcane cutter. My, my, my grandparent and his brothers were sugarcane cutters. And when I was a kid, I used to go, not to cut the sugarcane properly, but the, the top of the, of the plant, because it was used for feeding animals. So we all work on, on, on sugarcane eh, harvesting, if you want to call it that way. So no te vaya para que lo pasen. So one of the interesting things is that they had the water, right? They had the land, they needed workers. And the southeast of Puerto Rico had the biggest concentration of poor workers in Puerto Rico. They had worked for the Spaniards in the production of sugar. So they had the three elements that they needed. Could the poem It's not boring. Oh, okay, give it there. But there was an interesting thing about the, the, the southeast of Puerto Rico and the workers that they found there. They were black, most of them. Not only they were black, they had an Afro-Caribbean culture. And by that, what it means is that they were the descendants. Many of them had been brought during the time of Spain by their owners, either from Spain or from France, when the revolutions happened in Haiti and Martinique. So they were kind of rebellious. They were black people, hard workers, but they were rebellious. 
Let me give you a, an interesting uh, fact. In 1918 was the last execution of someone in Puerto Rico, death penalty. It was a guy from uh, this region, El Coqui, that decapitated a manager. So they were, uh, uh, you know, rebellious uh, workers, so to speak. So what they did, what the owners of this corporation did, and the managers, is that they created a white town in, in Guayama, near Guayama. And when I say a white town, is a white town. This is no joke, because when I was a kid, I used to go there. So they had their own hotels, they have their own uh, theaters, their own hospitals, everything. Can you move the, the I'm sorry. It wasn't only inhabited by, uh, by white managers of the company, but they created the houses like they were in the south of the United States. It was incredible. You would go there, and I remember going there as a kid. Uh, they had their own houses. Could you move the other one? That was uh, the golf club. There was no real, you know, uh, anything for poor people, but they had this little town actually a big town, and it was all white. It was like seeing the south of the United States. They transplanted a plantation kind of a structure to the south of Puerto Rico, and they were surrounded by what? Black people, and black people who were rebellious. So that, it, that in itself was a, a interesting. So this, that's another picture. Now, let me show you this. This is Central Aguirre. This is what they located, black people. El Coqui, San Felipe, the town that you're from. They put black people in little corners. And then they had this massive amount of land. And they had all the water. And they were producing sugar. And they were all white. They painted their house white. Their managers were white. And their culture was white. I remember as a kid, I was probably 11 years old, when the YMCA decided to uh, bring us to Central Aguirre to, uh, for swimming classes. So we were happy. Eh, what the heck? We're going to go to Central Aguirre. We're going to bring a swimming pool. There was no swimming pool in Guayama. So we went there, and we, we got there. They didn't let us use the swimming pool from the Aguirre Club. They had an old truck trailer that they had fixed for people to swim. And they said, that's where you're going to swim. And that's the way it was. Everything was sick, yes. They were mostly, mostly the managers were from Louisiana and Kentucky, uh, because those places there was sugar production too. So many of them were, uh, uh, the owners were from Boston, uh, but the, the managers and the families that went down there. In fact, a friend of mine just wrote a book about that. It's called uh, Puerto Rico Three Aguirre where she studies uh, this little town that was created completely irrational. I mean, it's like they brought this mentality, this segregation, to a town that was inhabited by black people, by black Puerto Ricans. And you know, when we say black and Puerto Ricans, you know, we all have, uh, we all have some black in us. You know, even the whitest Puerto Rican that goes around, I'm white. <laughs> As it's kind of like shaky to say that. But I'm talking about dark-skinned Puerto Ricans, like my grandfather and my, my sister who's dark-skinned, or like 
Albilda, who, despite her blonde hair, is black. So, so they created this little town. Look how miserable they are. Look, you have to go there. They put people, the workers, to live there. While they had everything for them, absolutely everything. So that's another picture of a recent picture. I took this about a month ago or two months ago. Poblado El Coqui. It will surprise you to know that these people have to drink water from taking it from the underground. While Monsanto and all the companies are like, you know, using the water. Pasa la otra. These are like some of the art that you see in El Coqui. And if you were in Aguirre and you were, you know, white manager with your family, the stories are incredible. They uh, had nothing to do with us. Uh, although I live in Guayama, I had relatives that live in El Coquí, in Mosquito, San Felipe. And right now, this is the center of the town, of the little town. It's a working class uh, town. Okay, now this is what, what is happening after uh, Maria. This is the community getting organized. The, the way things are happening is that throughout the Southeast communities are taking in their hands to solve their problems. They're not gonna bring any electricity, no problem. We're gonna use solar. And I, one of the groups that I have been collaborating, well they, this is a group that is kind of like coordinating five different communities. And what they do, when I went there the first time, they had no electricity and no water. So what they were doing was taking turns for cooking for different communities. Monday, one community cooked for the other four. So there are five communities. Tuesday, another community will cook for the other one. And they will share things and interact with each other. This is a meeting that we had last Saturday talking precisely about how we're gonna get organized to empower people to solve the problems without having, without waiting for a help from the government that is not coming. Yes. I'll tell you the names. So we had, you know, look at the young people. You know, there's, there's young people, they have, they have nothing. Do you know what they call the southeast of Puerto Rico? The poverty uh, belt of the island. That poor they are. And this was the land that created wealth for uh, big millionaires in, in Boston by stealing the water that had a guarantee us a, a, an agriculture that fed us, not only fed us, but it was a sporting good for other places. This is like one of the days that we were distributing water and things like that because there's no water among the poor people. Monsanto has water, which is a different thing. Now, this is what is left of a, the Aguirre mill. These are the ruins. Because even though they said in the 1920s that you know, all the future of Puerto Rico is going to be based in sugar and this is going to last forever, when it wasn't profitable anymore, they took off. And they left that. They didn't even collect what they had, uh, uh, the buildings. Could you move the other one? This is the old theater. They had the only really nice theater in the area. It was their theater. That's this, it's a picture that I took of the ruin. This used to be their hotel. And if you were lucky and you got sick in Guayama and you had the opportunity of going to the Aguirre Hospital, man, that was something else. Because the other alternative was to be brought two hours into the next town 
to get a, some kind of a medical help. And the driver of the ambulance was my cousin, who was always partying and never doing his job. So if you survive that, that was something else. Now, this is a, my final point. So the ruins are there. The sugar went out. But guess who survived? This is my cousin, Nora Cruz. She's like a big person with Afro-Caribbean Afro poetry. This is a baile of bomba. And it's an event of bomba that was done in Aguirre, in a plaza that is called Agui a Kennedy Plaza. Of all the things, you know, they named that plaza or that square the Kennedy Square. So now the same people who are the descendant of the workers who were isolated and marginalized from Aguirre, they're taking it back. And you know what they're doing? The dancing bomba. That's fascinating. I know all these people. These people, when they're not dancing, they're solving problems in the community. They're taking care of children. They're cooking for other people. They're getting organized. Because I think that I go back to what her uncle says. If there's trauma and there's organizing, you can actually, with your culture, break away from the trauma. And if we do that collectively in Puerto Rico, I think that we will overcome this stupidity of being a colony for so long. And I have a lot of hope in the youth in this generation. Now, if you have other pictures that you can, this is another dancer, a bomba dancer. This is beautiful, beautiful picture. That day we had a, I don't know if your uncle is, your uncle was around here, because we had a dancers from all the island that are coming together, and the purpose that they come together, I'm not there yet, is precisely to uh, use culture as a way of organizing. And I think that, you know, I go back to what Naomi Klein said, you know, we have trauma, we have organizing. That means that there's tension, and when there's tension, there's a potential for change. If it was only trauma, then it would not work, but there's organizing. And organization in Puerto Rico right now among the youth is bomba. And I have to say, I grew up with salsa and all those fancy stuff. I even listened to rock and roll. But I'm surprised, you know, how bomba has really caught with the youth and how they're producing new things. And they, you know, they, they, whatever opportunity they get to a, have a political event is going to start with a baile of bomba. I mean, I, that's the truth. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, that's what I have seen. It's a beautiful dance. Uh, basically, there are different patterns of uh, the dance. In my town, it tends to have a, a French kind of like flavor. Uh, simply because the fact that we're in the southern part of Puerto Rico and many of the slaves that were brought to Puerto Rico were brought by the owners from Martinique. There was a big revolution in Martinique in 1848 and it started with a guy playing drums. Bomba. The same thing pretty much happened in uh, Haiti. I'm going to tell you something. Between 1750 and the 1800s, New Orleans was part of the Spanish Empire. And people moved from Cuba to New Orleans, from New Orleans to Puerto Rico. There was interaction with Haiti and with Martinique. There's this guy that is called, his name is Ted Sublet, 
And his argument is that that region was culturally unified by black culture more than anything, despite the slavery, despite uh, the oppression that signified for people to be treated as slaves, they found ways of creating original culture. And slaves in Puerto Rico knew what was happening in New Orleans, they knew what was going to happen in Cuba. Uh, Haiti was at that time a really wealthy and cultural uh, place. Uh, Martinique was called the Paris of the Caribbean. I think that Napoleon's wife was from Martinique. The first one. What's her name? Josephine, Josephine, she was from uh, Martinique. So in 1791, there was a big storm, huge, killed a lot of people, but the end result was the first explosion of Afro-Caribbean culture. You have guerrilla fighters in Haiti way before Che Guevara. There was a guy named Macandal, who was the Che Guevara of Haiti, an impressive dude. 1848, the same thing in Martinique. New Orleans is really interesting because New Orleans had a flavor in the music and the culture that was really similar to Cuba and to Puerto Rico. In fact, when you go to the poor neighborhoods around the Central Aguirre, they had something that is called, a, let me take a step back. Under slavery in Spain, drums were allowed. One of the things that slaves were able to gain was to have one day where they can play the drums. That was not the case in the Carolinas. Drums were prohibited, absolutely. But within the Spanish culture, there was one day of a week, Sundays, that they could get together and play the drums. And in order to do that, they created some plazas where workers, where black people, slaves, would gather uh, to play their drums. Bambula, bomba, whatever. In New Orleans, there's a place that is called Congo Square used to be the old place where slaves would get together to play uh, their drums. In the poor neighborhoods in Puerto Rico uh, that we saw around Aguirre there, were, Aguirre, there were also plazas where black people would gather in order to play their drums. So there was, a, 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 even though slavery under Spain, Spanish rule was a brutal, a criminal, whatever, there was that space for use of the drum. Again, if you go back there and you come back here to the present in Puerto Rico, the same thing, the drums. That's a unifying force in the Caribbean culture. Cuba, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, uh, Puerto Rico. The use of the drum. And many of the, the revolutions and the revolts started around the drums. They would gather and say, well, the masters would say, okay, you can have this day off. And they would go and get together, play the drums, and then decapitate a couple of uh, uh, slave masters and, and things like that. So I don't know if you see the parallel with the present now, that in a way, you know, we have been looked from the outside. And I appreciate what Naomi Klein is doing, because for the first time, I, when I saw her interacting in Puerto Rico, I think she grew up intellectually. She realized that you can't really go around judging people and simply say, oh, this is a sharp doctrine. You have to get to know them. And you have to interact with them. And, and, and know deeply inside uh, how, how they feel. So that's kind of like the parallel that I think is happening. I think it's a, 
It, it doesn't mean that necessarily tomorrow there's going to be a revolution in Puerto Rico, but right now, I mean, I don't know any single day that hasn't been a protest in the island, all over the place, all over the place. And, and again, uh, together with the drums. I wanted to mention a little bit about this guy, finish with him. Oh, we're going to put the, the, the bomba thing first. I wanted to show you a couple of videos of dancing bomba in Guayama. There's this guy who's 90 years old, he's from my town, and he's supposed to be one of the big dancers of bomba, and he's still dancing, and he goes around. Uh, I think you have to go to the videos. And so they got together. Uh, I'm going to go back to Gochak uh, to finish my presentation. I hope that you guys are enjoying it. Uh, Okay, this guy is 90 years old. He's from my town. Oh, as Brenda will tell you, she, you're from the, from the north, right? Santurce. And the bomba has a different flavor there. Here, it looks more like, the, like a French uh, uh, vase, which is the influence that you have also, in, you see? Okay, I'm, I'm not saying that there are not other uh, musical uh, traits in Puerto Rico, other, uh, uh, that we don't play other things, and musica jibara, and all of that. What I'm saying is that among the youth in the south coast and in the coast of uh, the northern part of Puerto Rico, bomba is the dance of the moment. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that for me is surprising, because uh, I thought that 400 years of colonialism with the Spanish, Spaniards, and then 100 years with the United States would have erased all memories of uh, the origins of our people. And look, he's there. So what a, what a tribute to our strength, what a tribute to our willingness to uh, fight, uh, like Naomi Klein says, uh, to, to take on capitalism not only to be victims of a shock uh, therapy, but also to uh, overcome this through struggle. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this guy. How many of you know who Louis Murogo Chak is? Oh, you know, right. You go to Cuba, and in Cuba, everybody knows who Gochak is. I, I sometimes go to Cuba and spend time in the National Library, and I was talking with musicians, and the biggest uh, theater in Havana, Teatro Nacional, has a thing about Gochak. Gochak, this is a guy playing his music. He was born in uh, Haiti. Uh, Louis Muro Gochak, so that's probably, I don't know if that's a Jewish last name, it might be. Uh, but his, his parents migrated out of uh, New Orleans, uh, in, out of Haiti. In, 19, in 1801, 1802, during the time of the revolution, and he was brought to New Orleans. And he went to Europe and studied music with uh, Chopin. And he became like a protege of Chopin. Chopin thought that that was going to be the guy who was going to be the greatest pianist uh, in the United States. But uh, Gochak came back, 
and he went back to New Orleans, and what he wanted to do was to transcribe uh, African rhythms into classical music. Not a good idea, 1854, 1852. So he uh, faced a lot of uh, rejection, particularly by the uh, Classic musicians from the time were primarily from Boston and didn't want to hear anything that was black, even though it was Boston, liberal, whatever. So he ended up uh, traveling and he went to Cuba and he spent a significant amount of time in Cuba. And he transcribed a lot of the music of the black people from Cuba into classical music. And some people think that he might be responsible for uh, the Cuban dance. The most elegant dance that they have in Cuba, it came at a time when Gochak was there. And, excuse me? Habanera is one of the, the places. So he went from, from there, he went from Haiti. He was raised by a, a, a black nana, and he was a really progressive guy. He went to Haiti, and then from Haiti, he said, you know what, I want to go to Puerto Rico. He went to Puerto Rico, and he went to Guayama. He went with a opera singer, last name, uh, I remember right now, but it was a famous Italian, Daniela Patti. This guy knows a lot. <laughs> so he went to Guayama, he went to Puerto Rico. And there's some interesting, uh, I mean, look, look at this. This guy's from New Orleans, went to study with Chopin in 1856. What the heck is he doing in Cuba? Puerto Rico and Haiti. And one of the things that he did was to transcribe what is the basic rhythm of bomba into classical music. And if you take that basic rhythm, which is called tresillo, that's the basis for salsa, for mambo, and for all the rhythms that you have, including jazz. They're derived from that thing. That's the real black root of jazz, el tresillo. It's called what? He knows. So this is him, this is guy playing a transcription, the transcription that he does of the bomba, called bambula. for independence uh, immediately after Maria. I think that some part of the American people would have understood what we were doing. That uh, it is uh, incorrect to think that uh, we were gonna be looked uh, as not being reasonable, simply because our connections with this country go way back, way back, culturally, and in many, many, many ways. And an example of uh, 
of Gochak, a guy who influenced Cuban music like not, not too many people did, influenced Puerto Rican music not, like not too many people did. He was from the United States and he was persecuted here because he was against slavery. And he ended up going to Brazil where he, where he was considered like a hero, like God. And he died and they then returned his uh, uh, corpse to New York City and they buried him in an un unknown uh, burial place. Now, now I think they have like something that says Gochak, but he uh, died uh, miserable, poor, and such a creative uh, genius. So that's basically my presentation. I don't know if you learned anything about La Bomba. Uh, if you really want to learn a lot, I don't want to mention her name, but uh, there's going to be an event soon where her uncle is going to come. You got to see this guy. Forget it. Because you see him and he's quiet, but when he, he caresses the drum, it's like he, you know, he puts a drum to talk. Uh, so if there's any question or any comment, uh, appreciate. Because what happens is that the water that you saw in the center of the island is being directed uh, through the irrigation system for the benefit of uh, Monsanto. But there are communities like in Salinas, uh, El Coqui, which they depend on underground uh, water, aquifers. Some of those aquifers have been polluted, even with radioactive material, by some of the corporations that are operating there. In addition, Monsanto uses a lot of uh, pesticides. So those pesticides uh, go down the, the soil. Also, some of those pesticides are built uh, organically, so they become part of the plant. I don't know if you know that, that they, they design them in a way that they, they, they become part of, the, of, of a plant. When the plant is uh, dead and it becomes uh, uh, dust, all those pesticides uh, go down. They did a recent study uh, about a year ago about water quality in the southeast. Uh, and uh, the only people who have clean water is Monsanto. People are drinking uh, highly polluted water uh, that comes uh, from the underground. So uh, that answers your question. But if you go up to the mountains, what town are you from? Carolina, okay, Carolina is the northern part. But even Carolina has a lot of rivers and you have a, a you know, you have a, a parts are mountain, a little bit of mountains towards Canobanas and things like that. But the southern part, which was entirely arid and was one, one quarter of all the land in Puerto Rico, uh, needed water in order to be uh, transformed for the production of sugarcane and now for, for bean seeds that Monsanto is a, a manufacturing there. That answer your question? It's, it's a little complicated because you know not too many people. Uh, there are people who specialize on doing forensic hydrology. I have learned so much of this. It's crazy. Uh, who will design a map of a place where a river used to be, and often when rivers are uh, diverted they find other ways of uh, pursuing their, their path. 
And if you go, you know, I have visited all the system of uh, irrigation in Puerto Rico, and there's some places that you see the water and you go like, what the heck is this? This amount of water while people are uh, suffering uh, for lack of water, and then you have to get bottled water. Isn't that crazy? So, any other question? Yeah. You were wondering why this trauma Absolutely. It takes more of a normalization. People can then start to think of alternatives, of broad based alternatives. Absolutely. 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 Absolutely, and, and you know, I didn't mean to be too, yeah, I, I, I didn't mean to be uh, judgmental. What I'm saying is, you know, I really think that we need to understand the basis of the trauma. One of the things that I, I've been doing, and we have been doing with this group's discussions, is learning to talk. Because, you know, the reality is, well, I want to say something bad about Puerto Ricans, but often, often we don't listen to the other party, the other side, before the other person uh, even finishes sentence, we jump in. And, and, and that in Puerto Rico is incredible. If you're from different political parties, forget it. They can't even see each other physically. And one of the things that we do with these groups, particularly because they're youth, is learning to talk, learning to listen, learning to be empathetic. If you are behind and I'm ahead of you, let me give you a hand instead of simply saying, well, you know, you're back there. I'm going to go forward along. So there's a process that is happening. There, there are signs that are positive. For instance, there's a, a right now a group of women, and, and I have to say it, women are at the forefront of the struggle in Puerto Rico. It is. There's no way. I mean, ugh. 
like the battle for the defense of public education is by Eva Ayala, who is the president of the, the Teachers Association. And every place you go, like in, you know like in La Bomba, the one that sings is the woman? Interesting. So they, they have really uh, come forward with a, a, a better sense of empathy, a better sense of understanding, of listening, of communication that we guys in general sometimes, most of the time, don't have. And one of the things that is going on is, you know, they, there was a gathering of uh, five women who want to come to Congress and petition for a number of things. And they're from different political parties. Maria de Lourdes Santiago is from the Independentista uh, party. There's another woman that is called uh, Lugaro, I don't remember her first name, who ran as an independent candidate for the governorship. They, they say that also uh, Carmen uh, Julien is part of this. Uh, the, the woman that was a candidate for commissioner resident by the, by the socialist group, the Partido del Pueblo, uh, Mariano Gelli, they got together and they say, we want to go to Congress and meet with them and tell them that we want three things. Number one, the repeal of the Jones Act. Number two, a decrease, significant decrease on the debt that they're trying to collect, $70 billion, uh, and, and for that debt to be audited. Uh, to see if there was a, a use, if it was used uh, uh, according uh, to the law. And the third one is to repeal the PROMESA Act. They're not asking for independence. They're not asking for statehood. They're not asking for a final solution of the, uh, 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 of the status. But those were the three things that were at the forefront in Puerto Rico immediately after Maria. Jones Act that didn't allow ships from other places to arrive. Trump saying they're going to have to pay their debt. Third, to have a board, a control board dictating uh, the policies in Puerto Rico. And I think that effort has to be uh, uh, followed. And uh, there are people who say, well, I would not talk with Carmen Julian because she's from the Democratic Party, whatever. Talk to her because they are communicating. They know what they're doing. Let's listen to them. Let's listen to, let's learn to listen and to interact in a different way of simply, you know, writing off uh, people. And I think that the youth are doing that. My generation and yours, I don't know, we're a little bit more stubborn. But what I see is the youth. And because when they get together, you can't dance bomba like they do. I mean, it's like, oh, Lord, I can't do this. So it's their gatherings, they control what happens, they uh, establish the, the norms and the rules, and they have passion and energy. And I think that the role of, a, in my opinion, of a Puerto Rican intellectuals is to assist them. We have put too much time, and, you know, and I don't mean this in disrespect to anyone, but many of our intellectuals were like interested in getting a, you know, publish something in Harvard or being known in Yale or being known in here on the other. But what about solving a basic problem of our culture? Why not be generous for the first, you know, for, for real time and get together and get engaged in this process and help if we can? But in order to do that, you got to listen. You can't go around telling people, you know, Oh, I made it. I have read books about Puerto Rico that I buy it, read it, and throw it away, because I know that they were written for American universities, or they were written written with a with a grant from the Ford Foundation. Fine, 
but write something else. Write for people. Write for a, I'm gonna tell you a story. I'm gonna finish with this, unless there's another question. I never thought I was gonna be a writer. I remember I was driving to Hartford, and I saw this situation where there was a dog that was bleeding to death on the road, and there was a guy trying to, you know, caress the dog, you know, and help the dog. So I, I stopped, got out of my car, and went there. So when I looked to the hill, I saw that there was another dog, and that they were what we call satos. They were mud dogs. So I wrote a, an article about, you know, satos in Puerto Rico, dogs that run the streets. And it's called Guayama, Ciudad de Brujos, Molinos y Satos. So it talks about the dynamics of growing up in a city where there was no uh, limitations for children to play. My generation, I grew up in a neighborhood where there was barely, uh, you had to go and get water from you know, a place, you know, there was no pave on, pavement on the, on the roads. We were really poor, but we felt protected. And you could play in different places. And I, you know, I wrote that, and I wrote the things that I used to do, and the, you know, I mentioned that we used to go to the uh, Aguirre Central to steal golf balls, and uh, all the tricks that we did, and how we, you know, we would like wait until they hit the ball, we would go and grab the ball, and then all the Americans would come like, yeah, yeah, give me the ball, give me the ball, and we would run away, and things like that. So I'm at home, I publish that, and I put my address on my phone, and I get a, a phone call from New York City. This woman calls me and says, you know what? My father just died. And every time I went to the hospital to see him, I read him this story because he was absolutely convinced that you were writing about him. What an incredible thing. I said, no, how old is your father? He's probably like 15 years older than me. I said, no, I wasn't writing about him. I was writing about the culture that I grew up. I said, well, the last days that my father was in the hospital, he had cancer. We consoled him by reading him the story. I don't know if that means that I'm a good writer or not, but I keep writing with my heart. And we need writers like that. We need people to open their hearts and to write what they feel, instead of simply writing books that are, you know, eh, fancy stuff for universities in the United States. Yeah, so what? Can you communicate truly with your people? Can you really do that? My generation, the way I say it is, we have the responsibility of being there for this new generation, whatever it takes, and primarily by being intellectually generous, really. Mm -hmm. By being intellectually generous, by opening doors, not by seeking, oh, I'm gonna publish a book to be famous. So anyway, any other question or? We're done. So you want to say a little bit about Bomba? Because this was a, this was a presentation about Bomba, and I haven't really talked too much about it. So. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> I was so nervous when you told me to come up and talk a little bit um, because normally I don't speak. My skirt does the talking. Yeah. So um, so now I'm speaking, now I'm nervous, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, so I just wanna kind of go back a little bit to my family. 
you know, I always go and I always talk about my grandfather, Rafael Cepeda. And um, due to him and his father, Modesto Cepeda, they opened the doors of, of what we call Bomba y Plena. Well, one of them, right, because there's many others. Um, you know, just giving a little bit of quick history, you know, my grandfather married my grandmother, Caridad Cepeda, and from there they had kids. And um, I always, when I talk in schools, I always say, well, think about it like the Jackson Fives, you know? They had 10 kids and they taught them how to play, dance, drum, you know, everything, sing, and they formed their group. The first group was ABC, ABC. The other group was, I'm always so bad with these names, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> a Grupo Folklorico de Tri, Pachi, can you help Manuel? Manuel, you're so good. Was ah, oh, now they get that thing. And um, the first group, they were on the local radio in Puerto Rico. The second group, they did. They formed their movies, discussing, talking about Bomba y Plena. And then the third group was the most important group because they went international. They went out to different places, and they they showed and they expressed their music. Um, I want to get to me now because, you know, the first time I saw my father dance, I was very young. And um, it was in New York, and he went to my school. I was um, going to PS30 at that time. And my father came out, and he was with the group um, Los Plenarios de la 21. And he was performing on stage, and I was very young. And um, hey, <laughs> and um, you know, I was with my mother, and um, you know, I, I hear my father playing, I hear him dancing, singing, and I got up and I just started, you know, moving side to side, like, oh, there goes my papi. And my father brought me on stage. And during that time, I had a skirt, you know, and um, I started dancing. And then I just started twirling around and dancing, and all I heard was, <gasps> So, you know, I thought they were clapping, but then I realized I didn't have shorts underneath my skirt. So, <laughs> so I remember I got yelled at by my mother, but um, you know, that time, that day was when I felt it, you know? And I felt that this is what, I was young, but it didn't matter because it, it, it's in my blood. And, and from there, I started learning. I lived in a period of time with Dio Jesus, I lived with him. During that time, he was with Titi Sonia, who, God bless her soul, passed away. Um, you know, and I learned from my cousins, Julia Cepeda, Tata Cepeda, Brenda Cepeda. I was texting her right now that I was, you know, listening to you and everything. And, you know, the good thing about us is we're, we're family, it's unity, mm -hmm. you know, and we unite. And, and when we get together, you know, um, our music talks, mm -hmm. you know, our music speaks, and it talks about where we come from, why we do this, and our love and our passion for our culture. And, and this is why, you know, I'm always out there, I'm always in different, you know, whatever opportunity that I could get, I could always come out and talk about Bomba y Plena, and I come out with my group wherever I go, you know. Um, so it's, you know, it's an honor to, to talk about this and um, just to, to dance it. Yeah. 
you know, it just really brings me back. Sometimes I end up crying when I dance, you know, because I feel my grandmother near me, you know. Um, so thank you. <laughs> I made it very quick, huh? Um, so yes, I have an event that um, I'm just going to announce it here because I'm so excited. Okay. <laughs> I worked so hard for this. Um, on July 14th, um, I will be doing um, a musical obra de Bomba y Plena um, located at City Stage. Um, I got tickets out already. Thank you. <laughs> I worked, thank you so much. I worked so hard. Oh, people know. <laughs> uh, um, so I want to make sure I get it right because I have somebody helping me out with this because, you know, I'm very new at this too, writing obras and stuff like that. So, la obra se llama La Cultura de Puerto Rico, Muero Yo. Por la cultura de Puerto Rico, Muero Yo. Okay. <laughs> 